Matthew 4, 12, hear the word of the Lord. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to, into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah may be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. Father, we pray this morning that you would use your word written to show us your word incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his holy name. Amen. Well, I found a great analogy, and like all analogies, uh, it does have a weakness. I'll say that up front. But the analogy is this. Modern politicians... When they announce their campaign for office, they are usually very careful and very strategic in choosing the location where they make that initial announcement to campaign for office. Now, I hate to compare Jesus to a politician, but I do think this is kind of the idea here. For example, if you're a politician and you're getting ready to run on a platform of job creation you would most likely choose a place where unemployment is high to announce your campaign. If you're going to run on a platform of education, it would not be uncommon at all for a politician to make that announcement at a major university. There's a purpose in mind in choosing the place of announcement. I think in Jesus's ministry, there is a purpose in mind in the place of ministry that he chooses. And our passage this morning begins with Matthew describing the public ministry of Jesus. He's been baptized. John the Baptist has now been arrested. This is the beginning. This is the formal beginning of Jesus's ministry. And we know he's about 30 years old. In Luke 3.23, we're told that he's about 30 years old at this point in his life. So he's, he spent 30 years growing up in Nazareth, a little bit of time of Egypt. We saw that. Comes out, spends 30 years in Nazareth. 
Matthew and, and the gospel writers skip almost every bit of that. It, it's very telling that all four of the gospels focus on the last three years of Jesus's life and even more specifically the last week of Jesus's life. So here we are 30 years later, he's beginning his public ministry. And Matthew points out very clearly Jesus's decision to make Capernaum his base of operations, Capernaum, his base of his three-year public ministry. We know that he probably lived with Peter in his house in Capernaum. And Capernaum is located on the Sea of Galilee. It turns out the Sea of Galilee is actually a freshwater lake. It's a beautiful spot. It's about 14 miles long, north to south-ish. And it's just about seven miles wide at its broadest points. But in the days of Jesus, and I think here's one very strategic reason that he's basing his ministry out of Capernaum. In the days of Jesus, it was a highly densely populated area. We know there were about 10 thriving towns just around the lake itself. And when I say thriving towns, these were, you know, 10, 15,000 population, give or take each. Capernaum's right up at the very northern tip. So it's, it's pretty far north from Jerusalem in what's considered the Holy Land proper. And it's located in the province of Galilee. Now, the province of Galilee is not very big either, but it's also very densely populated. Josephus, a contemporary historian, notes that in about a 1,200 square mile area in the province of Galilee, there were over 200 towns, and none of those 200 towns had less than 10,000 people. So 10,000 plus times 200 plus towns. All this to say, if you look at a map of the Middle East in the ancient world, when Jesus decides to base his ministry out of Capernaum, I think very strategically he is picking what may have been the most densely populated area in the Middle East at the time. That's a strategic move. That's a very purposeful move. On top of that, it turns out the province of Galilee was also located on one of the oldest and most important trade routes in the ancient world that goes from Damascus to Egypt. So when you look at the density of population, you look at this major trade route passing through this area, it would be hard, if not impossible, to find a more strategically situated location to reach the maximum number of people in what we know in hindsight is just a three-year window of public ministry. Jesus has three years till his death from this point. And he picks a very strategic location in the Middle East. And it's also a place that would be very unlikely in the minds of the religious elite. It would be a place that would be very unlikely in the minds of the characters like the Pharisees and the scribes. They would never expect to find the Messiah in this region to the north of Jerusalem, primarily because this area of Israel in the north was the first to fall in the Assyrian invasion of 733 BC. So at this point in history, 
It's a major densely populated area, very heavily traveled, but it has been under pagan influence for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's an area of pagan influence. It's an area that primarily speaks the Greek language, not the Hebrew language. It's an area that for many hundreds of years have, has been stripped from any of the Jewish influences that once colored this area hundreds of years prior. And so the Pharisees, the, the religious elite would look at this and say, there's no way this would be where our Messiah would come. There's too many Gentiles there. There's too many pagans there. But I think that's exactly another strategic thought going on here. And it, it signals to us what we'll see, Lord willing, as the Gospels unfold. This coming of the Messiah is the beginning of that promise that goes all the way back to Abraham, that he's going to bless every tribe, every tongue, every nationality. It is no coincidence, I don't think, that Jesus decides to base his three-year public ministry right here in the center of of unreached Gentile people. I think that's sending a very clear message that that is primarily what his ministry is going to be about. And that's primarily what the church's ministry is going to be about going forward. And we have another fulfillment formula. And I think this is exactly what Jesus is getting here. Matthew's getting to here. He quotes Isaiah 9 verses 1 and 2, which is one of the most famous messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Verses 15 and 16 there in, in Matthew 4. If you go back and look at the context in Isaiah, Isaiah is looking at this Assyrian invasion of the north and he's giving a prophecy that one day this area where the northern tribes have been decimated by Assyria, it's going to be reestablished. It's going to be restored. There's going to be a Messiah who will come and fix this mess. And then here we are 700 plus years later. And this area that was once ravaged by the Assyrians, this area that is now under the darkness of pagan customs and Gentiles. In fact, he says in verse 15, Galilee of the Gentiles. Just, just consider how that would ring in the ears of the religious, Jewish religious elite. It's Galilee of the Gentiles. Verse 16, these people are people described as dwelling in darkness. And if that's not clear enough, a little bit further down in verse 16, they're dwelling in the region and shadow of death. These people are living in darkness. They're living in death. They're living in the valley of the shadow of death. Pagan as can be, Gentile as can be, lost as goats. And this is where God, the creator, makes his decision to send his son and to base his ministry as the light of the world shining forth in this dark pagan context. That's very strategic. That's very intentional. And now he begins his public ministry. And he begins to proclaim 
the message of the kingdom. Verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's that same little uh, gospel summary that we saw John the Baptist preaching. Repent, if you want to get right with God, turn away from your sin, turn to Jesus Christ, because in Jesus The kingdom is now here. The kingdom is now coming. Well, next he calls his first four disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Of course, Peter, James, and John will be his his inner circle throughout these next three years. We're told in verses 18 to 22 that all four of these disciples are fishermen by trade. And I find that very interesting as well. If you've done any fishing, and I used to love to fish when I was in grade school and college, love to go fishing. It gets harder to find time to do that as an adult. But it's a great pastime. It's a great hobby. For these men, it was a trade. It was a living. It's how they put food on the table. And if you've done any fishing, you'll recognize that fishing is a particularly fit image for fishing for people which is exactly what Jesus is calling them to do. You fishers of fish, come follow me and become fishers of people. And you think about a good fisherman. A good fisherman studies his subject. My my lay memory of fishing is that about 75% of it is reading and studying. Getting to know your prey, so to speak getting to know what it is that you're after. And as a fisherman, you have to be, you have to have perseverance. As a fisherman, you have to have patience. There's a lot of days you're out there casting lures, casting nets, and you're not catching a thing. You've also got to be flexible. You have to know how to use different methods. These guys here are using nets. I've never fished with a net. But I've fished with fly poles and I've fished with Zebcos and you go down the list. There's all kinds of paraphernalia for fishing. And the good fisherman is familiar with all of these things or, or a vast array. He's got a toolkit with lots of things he can pull from. You also have to know how not to frighten the fish away. I think that's another big part of fishing. Just don't scare them away. And you translate that to being a fisher of souls, a fisher of men, a fisher of men and women, it's nuanced. It's very relational. It's an art. I think evangelism is an art. There's not a how-to step one, two, three that just fits every situation. You've got to use patience. You've got to study the person that you're getting to know. You have to have a sense of timing. I think timing is everything. Oh, humanly speaking, of course. But all this seems to translate so well to this new kind of fishing that these guys are going to be doing. And Jesus comes and he calls them from fishing for fish to fishing for men. And this presents a very difficult and costly decision for these guys. They can either continue in the safety of their profession, the safety of their provision, the safety of their nets, the safety of fish on the table, the safety of a place to lay their head. 
the safety and security that the world has to offer. Or they can listen to the call of Jesus and they can step out in faith and they can leave everything that this world has to offer behind and they can follow after Jesus Christ. And of course, the decision that they make, all four of these guys, is to follow after Jesus Christ. They decide it's worth it to leave their belongings if that's what it takes to follow Jesus Christ. They decide it's worth it to leave their jobs if that's what's called to follow Jesus Christ. They decide that it's worth it to leave their families. It's very interesting to me, as you go through the Gospels, you'll notice there's a contrast. This contrast is presented many times in the Gospels. The Gospel writers often emphasize that this is something that the religious elite and the educated and the wealthy so often fail to do. It, the cost is too high. The ask is too big. You see time and time again, these religious leaders and the educated saying, no, I can't give that up for Jesus. I can't give that up for Jesus. Anything but that. But then you have these guys who maybe aren't so educated in the world's eyes. And they'll give up anything. Anything. For the cause of following after Jesus Christ. I think that the clear message the question that's being forced, and this, this will come back time and time again. Is Jesus worth following? And is Jesus worth following if it causes financial troubles? Is Jesus worth following if it causes career, causes career troubles? Is Jesus worth following if it causes family troubles? And you see the answer in Matthew, you see the answer in Peter and Andrew and James and John, the answer is an unequivocal yes. This is the pearl of greatest price. And nothing supersedes it in value. Whatever we're called to give up, whatever we're called to, to walk away from, if it's for the sake of Jesus Christ, and that's going to look different for everybody in every life and every stage and every age, we're not all the same. We're not all fishermen. We're not all called to give this up or that up necessarily. But the idea is if it is required to follow after Jesus, it's worth letting go of. There's nothing that this world has to offer that's worth holding on to for the sake of, of, of not having Jesus. Well, look at his ministry here. He begins his ministry. He's ministering in verses 23 to the end of the chapter. And I think there's three main facets. What, what, what is the, the heart and soul of what Jesus is doing for these next three years? I think there's three main things. He's preaching, he's teaching, and he's healing. He's preaching, he's teaching, and he's healing. First, he preached. Verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach. We see the same thing in verse 23. The ESV uses a different word. It's the same word in the Greek. He went throughout Galilee proclaiming the gospel. 
It's the same word, proclaim or preach. It's used in the Greek to describe the job of a herald who has a message from the king. And it involves the, the bold, clear, unaltered message of the king that is being proclaimed. And if the herald, if the proclaimer has something to say on behalf of the king, the wise person listens to what he has to say. The wise person hears the message of the king being preached by the herald. And it's about getting to the heart. I think that's what preaching is. It's getting to the heart of men and women. To the will, to the volition. And that's what Jesus is doing in these three years. Second, he's not only preaching, but he's also teaching. Verse 23, he's proclaiming the gospel. He's also teaching in the synagogues. Teaching is about explaining. Teaching is about making things clear. Teaching is about removing clouds of confusion. That's different from preaching. They go hand in hand. You, you want to try to do both if you're a preacher. I'm sure um, Jesus did it perfectly. He's teaching. I'm imagining he's teaching about passages like Isaiah 9 and the fulfillment in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali in the shadow of death. He's teaching difficulties about the Old Testament. He's teaching how it is that these prophecies point to him and are fulfilled in him. If, if preaching gets to the heart, I think teaching gets to the mind. And again, they go together. You, you teach, you get to the heart through the mind that you've, been, that you've preached. That's what Jesus is doing. But thirdly, in addition to preaching, in addition to teaching, Jesus is healing. And he's healing, we say in verse 23, every disease and every affliction. He's healing every kind of illness. Demonic influence, paralysis. In fact, for Matthew, he doesn't just stop with he healed every disease and every affliction. Look what he does in verse 24. He listens. He goes to the trouble to list a handful of what he's talking about. They brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. I think he's emphasizing that there's nothing, nothing outside of the power and reach of Jesus. There is no malady, infirmity, disease, sickness, illness that is outside of the power of Jesus Christ. And that is a message of great hope. And it ties right in, and we saw this in our study in in Revelation, with this idea that with the coming of the kingdom, and you're just seeing little glimpses of it. That's kind of how I categorize these three years of Jesus' ministry, preaching, teaching, and healing, They're just little glimpses of the kingdom breaking in here, breaking in there. 
all pointing to that day that is coming when Jesus will remove every single thing that hinders our joy, hinders our comfort, hinders life to the fullest. That day when the kingdom is consummated and he will make all things new and he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, take away all sorrow, all despair, all hurt. These are just glimpses of that. Tastes, foretastes. When the kingdom comes, it's going to be here in its fullness. So he's preaching, he's teaching, he's healing. That is the heart of and soul of kingdom ministry. Friends, I would say that is the heart and soul of church ministry to this day. If I had to summarize what we are called to do as a church, I think this is it. Preach, teach, and heal. Preach. Wherever you see the church carrying out the work of the kingdom, you're going to see convicting preaching. Wherever you see the church carrying out the work of the kingdom, you're going to see clear teaching And wherever you see the church carrying out the work of the kingdom, you're going to see healing. Healing. Sometimes physical healing. Sometimes emotional healing. Sometimes mental healing. Sometimes spiritual healing. Healing hearts. Healing hearts that are gripped by the the darkness like these people dwelling in Galilee of the Gentiles. Care. Care for people that are hurting. That's what the church is called to do. I I love these little pew cards. I I don't know if you've ever looked at what's on the front there. I saw this years and years ago. I've seen it attributed to a couple of sources, um, but usually it's anonymous, but maybe somewhere around 18th century London. To all who are spiritually weary and seek rest, to all who mourn and long for comfort, to all who struggle and desire victory, to all who sin and need a Savior, to all who are strangers and want fellowship, to all who hunger and thirst after righteousness, and to whoever will come, this church opens wide her doors and offers her welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a healing ministry. That is caring for sick and broken people. I told a good friend just about a week ago, man, I love Presbyterians. I'm a Presbyterian by conviction, not by coincidence. I think Presbyterians do a great job at preaching. I think Presbyterians do a great job at teaching. I think Presbyterians do a great job at loving and caring on people. I look at this church and I see that every single day. I think one part where we might could use a little help. We do a good job caring and healing on people. But we do a real good job fancying up the outside and looking like we don't need caring. That we don't need healing. Friends, there's not a person in this room that isn't broken in some shape, form, or fashion. Everybody in here is carrying burdens, hardships, sicknesses, difficulties, despairs, darkness. And I think right up front in Jesus' ministry, we're seeing this very important truth. The church is a hospital for sinners. 
You are fed by preaching. You are fed by teaching. You are fed by other believers in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ who care for your brokenness. That's the church at its best. That's exactly what you see Jesus doing. That's exactly what we should see the church doing today. And all of this, just providing a little glimpse, a little foretaste of what the fully consummated kingdom will be like by God's grace. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this special glimpse into the beginning of the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we ask that you would make us fishers of men, preaching, teaching, and caring for others in the name of Jesus Christ as we eagerly wait his return. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, let's stand and sing our closing hymn of response, hymn number 211.